Right, yeah, so this week we're going to be looking at Luke 23, the end of Luke 23, looking at the death of Jesus and his crucifixion, and we're going to be looking at Psalm 22. So without further ado, I'm going to hand straight over to Katie, who's going to walk us through the first part of this evening. First of all, can I have a volunteer, please, to read Psalm 22? <laughs> Elliot, <laughs> go for it. Don't mind. So just being at Psalm 22, yeah? Yes, please. Okay, so Psalm 22, a Psalm of David. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? So far from the words of my groaning. Oh, by, oh my God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, and I am not silent. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the praise of Israel. In you our fathers put their trust. We trusted and you delivered them. They cried to you and were saved. In you they trusted and they were not disappointed. I am worm. I am a worm, and not a man, scorned by men and despised by the people. All, all who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him, let him deliver him, since he delights in him. Yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you, even at my mother's breast. From birth I was cast upon you. From my mother's womb you have been. You have been my God. Do not be far from me, for trouble is near, and there is no hope, no one to help. To help. Many bulls surround me, strong bulls of Bashan encircle me, roaring lions tearing their prey open their mouths wide against me. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is turned to wax, it is melted away within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, pot my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of the death, the dead. Sorry. Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men has encircled me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. Evil stare and gloat over me. They divide my my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. And you, O Lord, you're not far off. O oh, my strength, come quickly to help me. Live my life from the sword. My precious life from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the mouth of the lions. Save me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will declare your name to my brothers. In the congregation I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honour him. Rever him, all you descendants of Israel. For he has not despised or disdained the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him has listened to his cry for help. From you comes the, the theme of my praise in the great assembly. Before those who fear you, I will fulfill my vows. The poor will eat and be satisfied. They who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations will bow down before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him. Those who cannot keep themselves alive. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. And will proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn. For he has done it. Thanks for that, Elliot. Um, so we're going to read another passage now from Luke 23, the crucifixion of Jesus. The main like themes I'm going to be looking at here is trust and conviction. So 
um, as we're reading this passage, maybe think of some of the things that you saw in Psalms 22 as we go through it. So um, can I have a volunteer just to read 26 to 43? Yeah, I'm happy to give that a read for you. Thanks, ben. Um, so this is <laughs> Luke 23, verses 26 through 43. The crucifixion of Jesus. And as they led him away, they seized one, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, he saved others. Let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him. This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Thank you, Ben. Um, OK, so basically I'm going to be having a look at the characteristics of both this um, man and Jesus and how we can reflect um, how they act in these passages. So first of all, they both trust in God's plan with a chapter, Jeremiah 17, 7. But blessed are those who trust in the Lord, whose confidence is in him. We can see that they really shine through that in these passages. They both understand and know that God is near in times of struggle. Um, in Psalm 22, 19, we can see, but you, Lord, do not be far from me. You are my strength. Um, so this shows like ultimate trust in God, no matter what he's going through, he puts his strength in him. So that's massive trust. And then we can also see in the passage, Jesus trusts God so much that he prays for those against him and not for his own salvation. So this trust ultimately here is shown that if he's putting all his trust into God, praying for other people and not himself, he knows that he is saved through the way that he acts and the way that he loves God, that he wants to save other people. And we as Christians can learn from this to not hate the people who are against us or aggravate us, but to choose to love them instead. So that's a massive act of patience, I think, as well. Both are also mocked, shown in Psalm 22, 7 to 8, and also Luke 23 and 26. We see both in passages. We read them already. We don't need to. But they, um, they've both been mocked and they show conviction. Psalm 22, 22. I will declare your name to my people. That's how the man shows conviction. And Jesus showing conviction is ultimately he, him dying on the cross. Other examples of conviction, like throughout the Bible, can be seen in Daniel when he throws himself into like a fiery furnace because the king basically was this horrible man. He wanted everyone to worship him, but his life was full of sin. And Daniel was like, no, I don't want to worship you. You're a bad person. I want to worship my God. So 
King's like, fine, into the fiery furnace you go. And Daniel's like, that's what it takes. I put my full trust in God. And he went into the furnace and he stayed alive. This conviction to the king changed his whole perspective. And the king was like, this God guy seems pretty cool. I think I want to follow him too. If he can survive a fiery furnace, then he can do anything. Which is why I want to talk about trust and conviction in this passage, because not only does our trust and conviction make our own um, bond closer with God, but those around us, it can bring people closer as well. Yeah. So next time we find ourselves in conflicting situation, not as drastic as being put into a fiery furnace, but in times where we're mocked like Jesus is, or in times where we're scared, where Jesus literally shouts out, my God, why have you forsaken me? When in times where we feel threatened, it's the times when we most need to show our trust and convictions. It's the times where we want to run away the most, run away from everything and hide. But instead, if we show our conviction and our trust in God, so many miracles and good things can happen. And overall, it will just strengthen our relationship with God who is setting our path out for us. So yeah, this is very, you know, cliche. But next time we find it, what would Jesus do? Quite clearly, the man reflecting Jesus in the Psalm passage, we can also do that too. We have been given the gift of the Holy Spirit and we can use it when it is to change ourselves, the way we live, but also the way other people live. Yeah, thanks for listening. That was my little bit. I'm going to jump onto that and I would like to ask if anybody would like to finish off our passage for us. So from verse 44 up until the end of the chapter, I can read it if you would like me to. Okay, I'll, I'll go. It was now about noon and darkness came over the whole land until about three in the afternoon for the sun had stopped shining and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last breath. The centurion, seeing what had happened, praised God and said, surely this was a righteous man. When all people who had gathered, gathered to witness this saw what took place, they beat their breasts and went away. But all those who knew him, including the women who had follow, followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. Now there was a man named Joseph, a member of the council, a good and upright man, who had not consented to their decision and action. He came from the Judean town of Arimathea, and he, he himself was waiting uh, for the kingdom of God. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body. Then he took it down, wrapped it in linen cloth, and placed it in the tomb, cut into the rock one which no one had been had yet been laid it was a, it was preparation day and the sabbath was about to begin the women who had come with jesus from galilee followed joseph and saw the tomb and and how the bo his body was laid in it then they went home and prepared spices and perfumes but they rested on the sabbath in obedience to the commandment so yeah um, it's great to be with you all today i have split this whole passage so from 26 all the way up until the end of 56 i've split it into three but not exactly the three that you'd think where we have the crucifixion death and burial of jesus i've split it into three key areas which i think that it clearly shows throughout the passage from our heart his heart and his paused heart us him and his spirit so criminals condemned to death this is what Jesus is at the moment. He is a perceived criminal being condemned to death on a cross. They had to bear it themselves. They had to carry it all the way out until the out to the place where they were going to be crucified. This was basically a form of torture. This cross was big enough that it was it was so heavy that their bodies would be actively yearning just for a little bit of uh, respite. 
and then they'd get put on the cross. See, Jesus' physical body was already failing. It was already struggling. After the flogging and pain he'd been put through during his trial, he was unable to physically carry this cross from all the way from Jerusalem, all the way out to Golgotha, to Calvary. So Simon, a friend of his who uh, had come back into the city, he was drawing along his side and boy's cross for him and carried it for him, bearing his friend's cross, drawing near to him, taking on his weakness, taking on that pain for him, drawing near to him. Drawing near to one another is such a, a crucial part of our, of our growth in ourselves. It gives us this opportunity to, to bear our soul to somebody, to be like, I am weak. That's one of the most strong things we can do is acknowledging that we are weak. Paul says at the, at the end of the passage in uh, 2 Corinthians 12, he says, for when I am weak, then I am strong. When we bear our weaknesses to one another, when we open up our heart, when we open up our fallings, when we all open up our trials, when we go to people and they're like, you know what, I, I suck. Like when we go to people and when we open up about it, we are doing something that's so immensely strong. It's crazy to look at ourselves and think, oh, you know what, I'm perfect, because we're not. In no situation are we ever going to be able to compare to Jesus. When we draw near to each other, when we're vulnerable and honest, it's a really special thing. These things that we might have buried so deep within us that no light could ever possibly get to them. We are saying that this, this thing that we had shame in, it had power over us. We're saying that it's not going to hold that power over us anymore. We are saying this thing right here, you, you are just a blip in my life. I can move past you. There's a redemptive power in the cross of Jesus. This crowd, these people that are heckling him, these are the same people that condemned him to death at the Sanhedrin days earlier. We've explored how we're Barabbas in the last few weeks, our heart being up there alongside Jesus, being the rightful person to die, except Jesus steps in and is convicted for sins that he hasn't done. And he bears the cross. We've explored how that's us. We've explored how it's our brokenness that sends Jesus to the cross, condemning him to walk this path. The lamb being led to slaughter, living the perfect life so that he can die the perfect death. But we're the crowd too. Every single one of us is rightful to be on that cross. Every single one of us is broken. Every single one of us, our actions have caused Jesus to go to the cross. We see ourselves in so many places during this story because everybody who cast aside Jesus is sinning against, against Jesus, against God, against the Holy Spirit. In this situation, now we can look back at it with, the, with a valuable lesson of hindsight to see that, you know what? There's the cornerstone, which is Jesus going to the cross to bear my sin, where my shame, where all the pain that I have inflicted, where all the pain that I have felt, all the times when I feel unworthy, all the times when I make other people feel unworthy, every time when I speak out that pairs people down rather than build them up, he takes all of that and he's walking past us in the streets with his friend Simon lugging the cross behind him, walking, probably battered, probably bruised, probably broken, bleeding out of every pore that you could possibly imagine. 
still lugging that cross along bit by bit to the ultimate place where he'd be sacrificed. Moving on to verse 31, this says, for if people do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it's dry? See, Jesus is in this, in this section questioning our heart today. Not just questioning the hearts of the people then, but questioning the people now. See, in Jerusalem, about 70 AD, 70 years, maybe even 40 years after Jesus' sacrifice, it was completely ransacked by the Romans, torn down to the very rubble, completely destroyed, where they will say to the mountains, fall on us and the, and the hills cover us. They would be yearning for their saviour to be back. It's all good tossing Jesus aside when we don't need him, but why? What's that, what's that good for other than feeding our own self-indulgence? Our own part of us that is yearning for us to be the person that's on that throne instead of Jesus. That brokenness within us that is constantly saying, protect number one. That's the culture we live in. That's the culture that has grown over these last few years, saying that, you know what? Screw that. Do this. It protects you more. Rather than going out your way to help people in the street saying, no, they might be scamming you. Like, why are we looking at that and thinking that rather than thinking this person needs some food? needs a drink, maybe needs a bit of money to get themselves somewhere warm to stay tonight. It's all good going to Jesus when we need him, when we need something from him, when times are good, when, there's, when the tree is green. But what happens when we are struggling? What's your first thought? Is it prayer? Is it to go to God? Is it to search in the Bible for an answer? Is it to draw near to people? Or is it to bury ourselves into a hole almost? to wall ourselves into a corner, to hide away, to say that, you know what, I'm just going to stick here until, until things get good again. What about the rest of the time? Where are we when our faith is feeling at its lowest? Do we ignore it? Do we toss it aside? Do we just say, oh yeah, it's something I can use as an excuse for doing bad things sometimes. Oh, Jesus will forgive me. Prayer is a lifestyle. Prayer isn't a tactic. Prayer isn't a chore, it's not a job, it's not something that you're forced to do that we should just think about. Prayer is a lifestyle. 1 Thessalonians 4.17 says that we are called to pray continually for every breath, every moment of our life to be breathing out in the glory of God, to be searching every single day to become a bit more like his son praying continually, keeping that direct 24-7 chat line with God open, keeping it there, keeping him close to us, even in the days where we feel at our lowest, where we, where we wake up and we think, this isn't going to be easy, adding on the prayer, but I pray that I will feel you tangibly with me today. This chapter of Jesus going through trial, going through crucifixion, going through death and going through burial shows us more than anything that Jesus understands our pain. Jesus understands everything that we go through. Jesus is always there for us. NF says in one of his songs, talk to God, he's the only one who listens, even when you think he isn't. Even good people are great at making bad decisions. One constant. There's one constant that we see through every single walk of life. 
That's God. That's Jesus. That's his son. That's the spirit. That's the father. God will always be there to talk to. That's what we say when we say 24-7 prayer line. Because God isn't going to be like, sorry, out, or sorry, I'm on the toilet, or sorry, I'm gonna, I've got to go to college, or sorry, I've got to go and do my job today. God is always listening. God will do his job, but God will be listening at the same time. When we bring all things to God in prayer, in vulnerability, in humility, in honesty, he hears us. It might not always be a straightaway yes. But he hears us. He hears our lamentations. He hears our crying out to him. He hears the pain that we only bear to him. He hears every single thing that we do. He's with us through every single walk of life. For I'm convinced that neither angels nor demons, the present nor the future, nothing in all creation will separate us from the love of God. Emma shared last week about the poem about the person who was walking along a beach, turned back and only saw one set of footprints at times. Asking why God responds, because when you were struggling, I carried you. Every single step of the way he is by us, there to help us, there alongside us, drawing near to us. He was rejected by the people he came to save, taking on every single pain, every single sin, everything from all of us every single person that has lived every single person that will continue to live well after we any trace of us isn't here on this earth but he saw the journey he had to take psalm 118 verse 22 to 23 says the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone the lord has done this and it is marvelous in our eyes the most important story of of all time is unfolding before them. This is Psalm 118 as well. That last little bit was a section that I just added on top, but Psalm 118, David. David came so much before Jesus. He saw the big picture. We see so many times that Jesus's actions are prophesied. Jesus himself prophesies about his death three times that he sees every single step he had to take to redeem our heart, our heart. Moving on to verse 34, which is where he prays, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. Matthew 5, 44 says, But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Even on the cross, even in the most intense insane pain he could ever possibly imagine jesus is praying for the people who condemned him to death who sent him to the cross his focus in everything has always been the redemption of our heart has always been the redemption of the people who is the reason he's dying our fallen hearts in this intense agony caused by the cross of that continued arms up, having to pull himself up on the, on the nails that were pushed through his hands to get a breath, to then let himself go and start drowning in his own sweat. Every single breath he had to pull himself up to let out a word, and he still made that prayer, still made it happen. Our fallen hearts caused him to go there. His focus is always on that, on that our fallen hearts is the reason he's on the cross. 
his final actions, his final words almost on the cross is praying for the people who persecuted him. The amazing grace that redeems us, wretches undeserving of God's love, yet here we are. Son of God, the perfecter of faith, as it says in Hebrews 12 verse 2, on a cross, one of the most brutal ways you can be killed, a symbol of complete torture, now a symbol of love. Don't know how many of you might wear a cross around your neck going out through the days in college, in school, or wherever you go. That's a sig- that 2,000 years ago, signal of torture. Now, the redemptive grace of God. Even the prophecy is being fulfilled now. In the most brutal way he could be killed, prophecy was still being fulfilled. Our hearts sent him there. Our co- hearts condemned him to the cross. Never having sinned, Jesus himself became sin. Matthew 27, 46 says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Eli, Eli, Lamai Sabachthani. Fulfilling the pain that we see in Gethsemane. His tears, his screaming out in agony. This is the one time that we see him call out God. Rather than every time we see him pray so far, we see him pray Father or my Lord. He prays God. God is pouring out all of his wrath on Jesus at this point. All this pain, all this anger built up over our fallen heart. He is pouring it out on Jesus now. He is unleashing all the wrath that is deserving of us on this perfect person. Never to have sinned. He didn't deserve it. Jesus didn't deserve to die on the cross. He could have copped out at any given point, but he didn't. He went through with the cross, taking on our pain, taking on our sin, taking on our shame. He didn't deserve it. Romans 5 verse 6 says, while we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. That was our heart that put him on that cross. Our heart. That is why I've chosen this as the first section that we've got. This all shows why we are at the centre of this journey rather than just being merely here. So the second section is all about him and his heart. In verse 35 and 36, we see him sneered at by the people that that are there. We see the soldiers coming up and mocking him. But I want to take us all the way back to Matthew 4 the start of Matthew's gospel, the start of Jesus's ministry. He's out in the desert, 40 nights, 40 days. The same time that Lent is, is such a biblical number, 40. The tempter came to him and said, if you were son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Later, if you are the son of God, he says, throw yourself down for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and they will lift up your hands so you will not strike your foot against a stone. Three times he's tempted there, twice. Twice he is tempted with the saying, if you are son of God. See, we see later on in James 2.19, uh, says, you believe that there is one God good, even the demons believe that and shudder. In all this, Jesus is being tempted by the person that knows who he is most. Satan is the biggest believer in the power of Jesus. He's the biggest believer that Jesus was the son of God here to redeem our sins. He is the biggest believer, knowing the power 
that Jesus holds in just his pinky finger, let alone his whole body. That's why we see it there. And once again, here, Satan and the crowd question the power of Jesus, saying, if you are son of God. That question, that if, is striking at the human heart of proving that we can do something, proving doubt is wrong. The underdog story is trying to play into that humanity that makes us want to do it to prove people wrong. But Jesus, being tested, being questioned of his authority, questioning the fact that he was 100% man, 100% God, 100% of the time, stands up. Well, he couldn't really stand up on the cross, but he was there and he went through with God's plan, even though he could have possibly brought himself down from the cross and brought out God's wrath on them all. He's there. He's on the cross. He's hanging. He could easily take down all the power from heaven to take it, to fulfill what his human heart probably might have wanted. But knowing God's plan, knowing the journey he had to go on, he endured the cross, scorning its shame. Verse 36, he gets offered wine vinegar by the Roman soldiers. He is offered it out of mockery. At the start of his crucifixion, as a sedative, he was offered it. This is just further showing how he was cast aside. And I mean, at this point, it's pretty obvious to show that he was cast aside by the fact that he's hanging on a cross. But we see, even during this pain, the Roman soldiers are mocking. Being cast aside, he was still fulfilling every single prophecy. From the 39 books that came before the Gospels, Matthew 5, 17, Jesus himself said, do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Every step he knew the journey he'd have to take. From all the way back in Genesis 3.15, where we see the first prophecy of the you will strike his heel and he will crush your head. All the way back at the start of Genesis, he is there, the plan is there, and he's still fulfilling it out till here and well beyond that point. Everything, even in the time of ultimate perceived low, God is for us. God's plan is working. Through the highs and lows, God is for us. I'm sure lots of you will remember from last year, from the, from the first original lockdown, there was a song produced called The Blessing, The Global Blessing. And it was done around the world. And it, it stems from the, from the verses from Numbers 6, 24 to 26. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. God is continually there. He is continually blessing us. And this is the biggest blessing of all, the sacrifice of his son. Psalm 23, even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and staff, they comfort me. Even at our highs and our lows, he will be working for us. Though we might hit the highest highs or even if we hit the lowest low, God will continue to be for you. We move on to see 
the two criminals that are on the crosses either side of him and two really stark comparisons that are really different from each other. Which one are you going to choose to be? The ones that turns away from Jesus, that mocks him, that hurls insults at him, or the one that turns towards him? The one that says we have punished justly, we are getting what our deeds deserve, but this man has done nothing wrong. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. See, we look at 1 Corinthians 15, 17, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. C.S. Lewis also said, Christianity of false is of no importance, and if it is true, it's of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. Which person we're going to be as a choice? Are we going to turn away from God or are we going to turn towards God? This isn't choosing what we're going to have for dinner. Not even a big decision like choosing if we're going to do a degree or choosing if we're going, what job we're going to set up, settle down in. This isn't something that is big importance, but by no means massively life-changing. It's this and only this that is our ultimate choice. This one choice doesn't just settle you down for life, but decides what's going to happen well beyond that. This is our choice and it will, it will change a lifetime. It's a choice that for the second criminal gets him into paradise with Jesus, recognising who he was, recognising his weaknesses, recognising that Jesus was the son of God, gets him into paradise. But the other one, we don't see anything. And I think it's probably for the better. Seeing the complete stark contrast between paradise and whatever the rest is. Doing it purely to avoid one thing rather than to love another. This is Jesus' heart of forgiveness. A criminal condemned to death on a cross there alongside him. Still forgiving every single sin under the sun. God's grace expands far beyond what we, we can compare with. His love, his grace, there's no metric for any of this because we see that God's love goes beyond what we can imagine. Saving the 99, but then also the one. Going out, looking for the lost prodigal son. Going after that one. His love, his grace, so many worship songs focus on it. Reckless, unfailing, overwhelming, powerful, redemptive perfect love nothing can compare to it and here on the cross it meets its peak 1 corinthians 4 to 13 4 to 7 describe what love is love is patient love is kind it does not envy it does not boast it is not proud it does not dishonor others it is not self-seeking it is not easily angered it keeps no record of wrongs love does not delight in evil but rejoices with the truth always protects always trusts always hopes and always perseveres and then we also see in john 15 verse 13 no one is greater love than this that one laid down his life for his friends that's jesus's heart the very center the joy that was set before him he endured this the cross scorning its shame in all things jesus was keeping god's grace at the center of his guidance so now the third section, Jesus' spirit, his paused heart. Verse 45, for the sun stopped shining and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. In the inner court of the temple in uh, Jerusalem, 
there was um, in the Holy of Holies was the Ark of, of the Covenant. That was where the high priest would go only go once a year to offer atonement for the sins of the people. A veil, a very thick woven curtain separated the holiest of holies with the rest of the temple. This curtain was massive. And at the exact moment the heart of the sun was paused, the spirit was fully released. It's like if you're looking at the Trinity in a triangle, where one power dipped, where the heart paused of the sun, the spirit just was unleashed. When Jesus died on a cross as a sacrifice for our sins, at the very instant his heart stopped, the very instant he breathed his last breath, the heavy curtain was ripped from top to bottom. Not as if a man was ripping it, but as if God was ripping it. The power to break through the seams, this massive sheet of fabric, rather than ripped like a normal piece of fabric, it was ripped to inhuman extent. This veil was 60 feet long, 60 feet wide, and four inches thick. This was so massive and heavy that the one time that anybody went into the, towards the Ark of the Covenant, it took 300 priests to manipulate it. That's not one very, very strong person like it could possibly, but 300 priests. No human could possibly do this. Only the power of God that ripped this veil completely in two, top to bottom, through the seams and everything. God himself was saying, you are no longer on the outside, but here, have a way in. My son's made a way for you. This moment in Christ's death, nothing could prevent God's spirit from reaching us. Romans 8, 38 to 39, for I convinced that neither death nor life neither angels nor demons, neither the present or the future, nor, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nothing in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's it. That's where we see God's heart. That's where we see his spirit that unleash, unleashes his spirit out into the world as an open offering that there's forgiveness in the heart of Jesus. And now we move on to his burial. See, usually these criminal bodies were either left up or put in mass graves rather than having their own burial. But Joseph, a member of the Sanhedrin, this gesture is massively courageous. He's a member of the Sanhedrin. He wasn't present when Jesus was convicted. He wasn't for it. He, was, he knew who Jesus was. Putting his job, putting his life on risk to bury Jesus. Imagine there, in that moment, you're stood in front of the cross. Jesus is broken, beaten, bloody body is there in front of you. Imagine taking it off. No heartbeat, limp, all the life drained from his eyes, completely pale, carrying it to a tomb and then rolling the stone in front after preparing the body. Fate of the world sealed. That's it. That's that's end of story. But no, this isn't the end of the story. Because next week, Ben has something to talk on. Next week, there is more of the book to cover. This book doesn't end here. And it's not going to end well after this. God's power is still moving today. 
because the stone no longer in the position there was. Romans 8. And I'm going to leave you with this verse. I'm not going to natter on after this, but neither death nor life can separate us from the love that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord.